Greetings urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 736th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who encourages every gardener to have some permaculture principles in their toolbox. We're talking with Deborah Kanapke about climate resilient gardens. After two previous careers, in 1992, Deborah turned her avocation of plant study and gardening into her full-time career. Deborah is passionate about gardening, sustainable garden design, and the natural world, and enjoys sharing knowledge through her writing, public speaking, and garden consulting in the private and public sectors. In addition, she has mentored the future of the landscape industry at Columbia State Community College for 24 years. Deborah boasts an eclectic garden packed into two thirds of an acre. Welcome to the show today, Deborah. Are you ready to rock? I sure am. Yes. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I have always been a gardener. My dad had a vegetable garden. We were on a very tiny little suburban lot. And even in my college apartment when I was in school, I had 55 different indoor plants. Yeah, it's crazy. I had begonias. I had peperomias. I had these plants before anyone was even talking about them. I'm not exactly sure I want to tell you when that was, but it was in the (laughs) late 70s. (laughs) My dad was an avid plant grower. And when I graduated with my first master's, he gave me a big orchid and he said, okay, now you have to grow these. Oh, my gosh. And orchids aren't easy. At one point, I was growing 300 orchids under lights because I didn't have a greenhouse. And now I have a greenhouse and I only have about 40 orchids now because I have so many other things I love. So when our youngest was in kindergarten, I went back to school in horticulture because it just seemed like I needed to be more in touch with the land. Where I am the happiest is in my garden. And I, I often tell people that If I don't get into my garden when I'm stressed, I become a very, (laughs) yes, you can fill in the blank, (laughs) not great to live with. So being in the garden, teaching others about the garden, this is fantastic. I've been in this profession now for over 30 years and I can't imagine doing anything else. So nature, plants, the soil telling other people about it and getting people to use good practices outside. It's what I'm all about. It's that passion. We talk about passion and that is my passion. Wow. Nice. So in your intro, we used several words that I want to kind of pull apart. Mm -hmm. Climate resilient garden. What does that mean? We are in a time of change. Our seasons are shifting Our temperatures are going up and down like a yo-yo. If you think about the winters that we've had here in Ohio in the past 10 years, we have had, let's see, six years of zone seven, one year of zone eight, which means only three of those 10 years were zone five. And typically Columbus, Ohio was in zone five, a cold zone five, and we are now a warm zone six. And yet... If you were to look at the past 10 years, 
we're more in a zone seven, which is closer to you in North Carolina, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hold on here. This is new to me. It's kind of blowing Uh my mind a little bit. What I just heard you say Mm -hmm. is that the zones are changing. Our zones are shifting. In fact, the original cold hardiness map was from 1992. And another one was suggested in the mid-aughts, 2004, 2005. I'm not exactly sure when. And then people were saying, oh, we're not sure about that. And they did some more data mining and looking at what was happening in our climate. Now, climate is long-term, so weather is short-term. And what they found is that our seasons shifted. So we were put, Columbus, Ohio, we were in 5A in the 1992 map, and we were put into 6A in, I think it's 2012 map. But if you look at the past 10 years since that map came out, we've had seven years that are warmer than zone five with one of those years, one of those years being a zone eight year, which I believe is Raleigh, North Carolina. Wow. We were zone eight and nine in Arizona. Saying, well, this makes sense. This explains something. In 1999, a friend of mine and I put together a planting calendar, what Mm -hmm. to plant when. And about four years ago, my team and I got together and updated it. And we had to push things farther into the fall Mm -hmm. because it was just too hot in the fall to grow lettuce in September. We had to put that off until November. So that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. So we're looking at seasonal shift if you will. I wish I could say that it is constant, but sometimes we have a longer spring. Sometimes we have a longer fall. Sometimes we have, it's just this interesting shifting. But I remember as a kid, how the weather was, and it's very different. Now I grew up in Northern Ohio and now I'm in central Ohio. And in Northern Ohio, we often trick-or-treated on Halloween in our snow pants. Because it was cold and snowy. And early on here in Columbus, it was even cold at the end of October. But now October can be balmy in the fall of 2022. We're looking at temperatures that were in the 50s and 60s, even into November and December. Wow. All right. Yeah, That explains a small piece of it. So what is a climate resilient garden? It's a garden that can deal with that. It's a garden that has Mm -hmm. biodiversity in the plants so that if one thing doesn't work, something else will. It is a garden that is looking at plants that are failing due to problems with too warm of a winter, take the blue spruce, which is from the mountains, Rocky Mm -hmm. Mountains. And we bring them to central Ohio, which in my garden, I'm 842 feet above sea level, which is not where blue spruces grow. And our winters have gotten successively warmer and now they are dying like crazy. Physiologically, it's too warm. And once they're stressed, they're being attacked by diseases like needle cast and insects and you name it. So we have to look at our gardens with an eye to what is going to work in the future. Do we look at those plants that are in the south? 
for example, our sugar maples, which Ohio is number four, five, or six in maple syrup production. Wow, I didn't know that. But our sugar maples are failing. We're getting what I call sectional dieback. And so if you look at the tree, you can see parts of the canopy dying back. And the back and forth of temperatures in January and February causes sap flow and stops it and starts it and stops it. And it's just not healthy for the tree. So there was a bunch of maps created, a sort of predictions mm -hmm. on how long some of our trees would be in Ohio based on different warming scenarios. Oh my gosh, that is a uh -huh. magnitudinal shift. It is. And it was proposed that in 2075, the sugar maple and the Ohio buckeye would no longer be in Ohio because of shifting of temperatures. Except now they're saying it would be sooner than that, possibly as early as 2050. Wow. If we don't change how we're how our climate is changing. That, that's kind of I redundant. Have, yeah, I have this theory. And the theory goes like this. And longtime listeners have heard me say this before. I call it my 99-1 theory. 99% of the time people change because they get hit by a Mack truck. 1% okay. of the time they change because they choose to change. Right. And that is going to, the Mack truck is the climate change coming at us. The 1% is we've got to do something about this. We've got to wake up and do mm -hmm. something about this. And that's a big part of the reason I do this podcast is to get people to wake up. I know. I, and I really wish they would. And something I'm doing now is I'm exploring Southern species. What grows mm. in Tennessee, what grows in Northern Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. And I'm looking at them and are they adjunct species to what we have in Ohio? I'm trying to plan as I tell people what they can and should be planting in their gardens. It's a huge impact. Yeah. So this goes to another question, and that's how can a gardener add resilience to their garden? And that was one way. You're looking for species from elsewhere. Right. Another way is to make sure your soil is healthy, because if you have healthy soil, your plants will be less stressed. They're getting yep. the nutrition. They're getting the water is not evaporating quickly. So that means using cover crops, covering the soil. In fact, you've probably heard the five, four or five principles of regenerative ag. Tell me. Okay. I'm I will sure I have, but let's, re let's revisit okay. them. One of them is to minimize, although I say stop, minimize tilling minimize soil disturbance, yeah. keep your soil intact. Hmm. Second one is cover the soil. Yep. And it's best to cover the soil with plants. Now you can use mulch, but mulch isn't as good as using plants as cover crops. Cover crop. Then plant with diversity in mind. And that's me looking at the Southern species and seeing what might work in Ohio and our soils. And then reduce, and again, I say stop. <laughs> Reduce chemical inputs. Oh, yeah. You harm. Gotta, you got to, mm -hmm. let's just go there. You got to stop using chemicals, period, end of story. Right. Don't use them for anything. I did it for 32 years at my property in Phoenix at the Urban Farm, and it mm -hmm. was a masterful, amazing edible food forest there. Right. So you don't need chemicals. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I love hearing that because it damages the living communities and the soil. Soil's yep. alive. And yep. we keep doing things to kill it, in which, as I often say, we treat soil like dirt. Yeah. And so that was four. And the fifth one is of a is kind of in parentheses for gardeners. It's more for agriculture, but integrate livestock. Now, some oh, yes. people do mm-hmm. that with chickens and rabbits. So you yep. can do that in a personal garden. I don't see a lot of people in my neighborhood bringing in cows and sheep. <laughs> right. But those are the five principles of regenerative ag. Gotta love and, it. Yeah. So don't till over mm-hmm. the soil with a preferably a cover crop. Yeah. I've heard never leave soil uncovered. Right. Plant diversity. Don't use chemicals and mm-hmm. a great livestock. Right. Beautiful. They're great principles. And yeah. regenerative means to heal. Talk about sustainable. And sustainable is okay but it's not going to get us out of the pickle we're getting into. (laughs) Right. Sustainable means that you're sustaining that level. We have to heal. And that's what regenerative means to heal what we have changed. Where did you originally discover regenerative at? Oh my, that's going to be a stretch for me to think exactly when it came in, but I started studying permaculture back in the late nineties and in permaculture's ideas, there's that it's not only sustaining and using organic tools and techniques, but it is healing what has been damaged. Yeah. And then that, of course, has been called regenerative ag. And I argue it's also regenerative hort. Yep. But or so, and and even a regenerative lifestyle. Right. And in fact, in permaculture, a lot of people focus on the gardening, food production, food forest aspect of it, but it also has space in it for our social systems, our yes. exchange of money, our support of others, etc. But regenerative is part of permaculture, and it's also part of the old way that we used to take care of our land. Right. We didn't keep pulling out of it. We put back in, we changed our crops. We didn't keep, we rotated crops. And conventional ag does that to a certain extent, but not like they used to. We used to let fields go fallow and the weeds to grow. And those weeds, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, dynamic accumulation, that is our bioaccumulation of nutrients that in the lower part of our soil where plants don't often get to, there's all those nutrients. We have all the nutrients we need in our soil. Yes. It's just that they go deep. So if you have these deep rooted weeds or grasses or whatever, that's why our prairies were so rich, is they go down deep and they bring those nutrients back up. And then when the tops of the plants die, those nutrients then go into the top of the soil and filter back down. Yeah. When yeah. we don't let that happen and when we remove everything from the soil, we disrupt this beautiful nutrient cycling. So that's regeneration, to regenerate, to heal. Yeah. Now you mentioned permaculture. How did you discover your permaculture design course? I discovered permaculture in the late 90s and then I heard a friend was saying, this guy's coming into town. His name is Peter Bain who ended Uh, up being one of my teachers. Yes. 
And he's going to give a two-hour talk on permaculture. So I went, and then he talked about how he was coming to Columbus, Ohio, to teach a course, a six-week course. So we had to dedicate from Friday night to Sunday afternoon, six weeks. And I did it. I signed up for the course, and it was incredible. I knew a lot of what he and the other teachers were talking about because of I have a master's in horticulture. So I understood the theory of what he was talking about. He took it further. Yeah. He and he brought me along to really understanding all the things I've been doing intuitively. In my graduate study, I had a field outside and there was another study before me. And usually what you do is you kill it all down with chemicals. I didn't want to do that. And I also didn't use chemical weed control. I used a tiller and a hoe. I used paper and down in around my plants. And I had some weeds. So mine was the weedy field. Oh, yeah. Kanapke has the weedy field. (laughs) (laughs) And I did catch a little bit of teasing about that. But I said, I'm working on a crop, lavender, that is used in food and in perfumes and other products. And if I were growing this really in my own yard, I wouldn't use any chemical inputs. And I also said, I'm going to be in my own garden. I don't want to be exposed to this, which is how I came to organics in the first place in the mid eighties. When something happened with your daughter, right? She was one year old and I was going to spray my roses. (laughs) And I start thinking about what if Sarah touches the plants and puts her hands in her mouth And she has now just ingested the poison I put on my plants so they didn't get black spot. Is that worth it? No, it's not. So, and then also, it kind of comes around again. We have grandchildren. My granddaughter, who's now 11, when she, yeah, when she was six, we were walking in the neighborhood and there was the little white sign of death. You all know what it is that has the skull and crossbones because someone just treated their lawn. And she asked me what it was. And I explained to her that some people put down products on the lawn that will kill diseases and bugs and whatever. And she turned and looked at me with almost tears in her eyes. And she said, Grandma, what about the dogs? And she said, they're walking on this. Yeah. And I... So I will tell this story when I'm speaking and I'll say, if my six-year-old granddaughter can get this, so can you. (laughs) All right. Okay. That teared me up a little bit. You're right. And her first thought was because we have dogs in our neighborhood, lots of folks have dogs and of course they go on the lawns. So does it really disappear when it dries? Mm -mm. Yeah. No. And chemicals, let's go there. There's five components in my world. There's five components to healthy soil. Dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. Right. And when we're putting chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides on the soil, on the plants, it's negatively impacting the soil biology. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I use that a lot. I talk about what is in the biotic or living community of soil, because we have two parts of soil. We have the non-living, sand, silt, and clay size, and we have the living, a whole host of microorganisms. Yeah, billions and billions. And I use the example and I put my hands up in front of me and I say, in a handful of healthy soil, you have 60 miles of fungal hyphae. Wow. So when you think about that, you look at your hands and it's just, it's microscopic. Right. And That's maybe a couple of cups. Yeah, or not even. They even say in a cup of healthy soil, you have 60 miles of healthy temperate soil forest soil, et cetera, or prairie soil. You have 60 miles of fungal hyphae. To me, that is a way of looking at life, miniature life, and understanding what it actually contains. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the impact that healthy soil has to create healthy plants that then Mm -hmm. grows healthy food, more nutritionally dense is huge. Yeah. And there are conventional agriculturists who try to tell you that, oh, there's no difference between organic and conventionally grown food. I don't believe it. Yeah. I was just going to, we'll leave that with a bull. Yeah. (laughs) I say bulloni. (laughs) <laughs> well, oh, there you go. Baloney. Baloney, exactly. <laughs> There's a couple more things I want to talk about before we shift. And we talked about cultivars yesterday and a term I'd never heard. This is the reason I love doing this podcast is because I get mm-hmm. to learn things that, uh, that I've n- never known before. A nativar. <laughs> I'd never heard that term. Let's talk about cultivars, nativars, and the importance of them. Okay. So first I better define cultivar. Okay. So cultivar is a plant or group of plants that we select, we human beings select for characteristics that we like that are stable, distinct, and uniform, which means stable, they don't change, distinct, we don't have a gazillion yellow daylilies, (laughs) distinct, stable, and uniform, that when you choose a certain plant, they all look the same or have that same attribute. And when we propagate it appropriately, it retains those characteristics. And usually that means asexually by division or tip or root cutting or tissue culture, et cetera. Grafting. Grafting. That's another one. Thank you. So a nativar is a cultivar of a native plant. And a big discussion in the industry and in everyone who talks about wildlife gardens, pollinator gardens, gardens that are habitat gardens, wetlands, prairie, forest, etc. We talk about whether we should be using straight species or whether some native ours are allowed. And that can get into a pretty heated discussion. I have been in a couple discussions with people who believe that we should only be planting natives. And then other people say, but look at all these other plants that are out there. And for me, I always like to be in the middle. My father-in-law, who's no longer with us, told me a long time ago, we were talking about something. And he said, there's a Latin phrase that is very important. 
It is in medio veritas. In the middle, there is truth. So you go into that middle, and yes, some native R's work, others do not. And I'm going to pick on purple coneflower, echinacea. We have a whole bunch of native R's of purple coneflower that are no longer purple. They're yellow, they're orange, they're red. Wow. You know, do these still attract the insects like the straight species does? Do the pollinators still come? And we also have some that I call the powder puff echinaceas, where the cone has been turned into petaloid structures, and you have little left of the nectar and pollen that the straight species has. So the powder puffs are less good for wildlife gardens, a lot less good. Uh -huh. There's just not anything there for them. But some of our other native ours, like Magnus and Fragrant Angel, and on, I could name a bunch, they do really well in the pollinator visitation studies at Mount Cuba. So we need to balance everything we say. So not all native ours are going to work. Some native ours we choose because they're shorter, they're taller, they have a different flower color or fruit color. We just have to make sure that we haven't short-circuited what our native wildlife needs. Oh, interesting. So wow. for me, yeah, it's, it's just looking at it from all different sides. But I have to say, I love my food and herb plants, and no one better even think about taking basil away from me. <laughs> right. Or tomatoes, uh, <laughs> or yeah, peppers, chilies. Yeah, yeah. And I love my mountain peonies, my tree peonies. They're not native. So I'm not a purist. I can't be. This world is too huge and too wonderful. And the plants the, that are on it. You're in the middle. I'm in the middle. <laughs> in the middle. Gotta love it. And <laughs> so you've actually taken a lot of what you've done and worked on a heritage garden somewhere. Tell us about that. So I think we are the only governmental facility that is surrounded by a garden that represents the different physiographic regions or ecological regions of Ohio. This is the heritage garden at the Ohio governor's residence in Bexley, Ohio. It's right in the middle of Ohio. And we have amazing gardens that represent different areas of Ohio. It is only three acres. But we have a lot packed in there. Besides the native areas, we also have a woodland garden, which is mostly native, but has some non-natives. We have the gardens that are in front of the house that have to look good because this is the governor's residence. So we right. have annuals. And none of them are native. <laughs> so we have a beautiful mix in this garden of natives, non-natives, but no invasives. We are constantly looking for invasive plants. In fact, right now we are battling calorie pear. We look for calorie pear seedlings, which is a big problem for us. I don't know if it is for you or not. I'm but not heard. Calorie pear, P E A R. Calorie pear, Bradford pear, aristocrat oh, yes. pear. Okay. Yep. That's the Bradford's we've got here. Yeah. So 
when we only had Bradfords, it wasn't a problem. But when we brought in Aristocrat and Chanticleer Cleveland Select, which I'm told is actually the same cultivar, the trees were able to outcross. You know how a lot of fruit trees, you're a food grower, a lot of yeah. fruit trees like to outcross yep. to get fruit or need to outcross, I should yeah. say. That's basically what that means is if you have apple A requires apple B in order to cross pollinate. And get an apple. And get an apple, exactly. Yeah. But then those seeds are a genetic mix of apple A and apple B. Correct. Correct. And what happened is when we only had Bradford, Bradford wouldn't cross with Bradford. So we didn't have fruit production. Uh, and when we brought the other ones in, suddenly they were crossing like crazy. And we have huge expanses of calorie pear in Ohio along the freeways, in ditches, anywhere you can imagine. They're everywhere. And uh, it's a problem. They're, yeah. they're even competing with Amer honeysuckle. I don't know if you know that one or not. I don't. Okay. That's another invasive that we're stuck with here in Ohio. So wow. we don't try to keep that out of the heritage garden. Sorry to bring in the invasive plant thing. That's a whole no, that's, another that's, discussion. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on that. We one. could. We could. Uh, thank you so much for all that great information. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot so far. <laughs> and I'm going to shift. And I'd like for you to talk okay. about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. So in my backyard, I have what I used to call my Rocky Mountain Rock Garden. In the late 90s, I was up on Mount Evans, Goliath Point, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the plants that I saw there. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to buy a bunch of these and I'm going to plant them at home in Ohio, in my backyard. I'm going to put rocks in and I'm going to integrate rocks into my soil. And somehow I forgot that Goliath Point was about 11,000 feet in the air. Mm -hmm. And I'm at 842 above sea level. And boy, the soils are different. <laughs> and we have humid summers and cold winters, but maybe not cold enough. I bought 30, about 30, 35 plants. I'd have to look in my records. And all but one died in the first year. Mm. So obviously I was doing something wrong. So I bought some more. I wasn't going to stop. I bought some more the next year. Uh-huh. And some of them limped along for a couple of years, but they eventually all died. The only one I have left from that is a little tiny bun solidago, goldenrod, one of the goldenrod species from the Rocky Mountains. That's the only one that has survived for since the late 90s. So what did I learn from that? First of all, I learned that you cannot change your environment to match one that you've been in that's totally different from it. So I switched instead to plants that like it hot and dry, rocky soils that maybe don't drain quite as well as the Rocky Mountains. So the garden is a rock garden, but it's not Rocky Mountain species. It is other species that I've found that could adapt to my soils and conditions. Yeah. And I keep track of my plants. And I went back, oh, Several years ago, I went back and looked at my journals and realized I have killed a lot of plants. <laughs> As I've said for years, I promise you, I've killed more, maybe not you, but my <laughs> listeners, I promise you, I've killed more plants than you have. 
Yeah, we'll have to discuss that sometime too. That's another discussion, but every plant that I kill, I learn something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We get, we get a lot of questions like people want to grow avocados in Arizona and they're non-starters. Have people I... done it? Yeah. It's very rare, but you have to do a little bit of research to make sure you're getting the right, the right plants for your area. And what do you consider your biggest success? That's a tough question. First, my kids. Mm. I think that that's my biggest success is having children who now all have their own jobs. So success. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of gardening, I think my biggest success was finding out that I really enjoy teaching and that the way to spread the word and to get other people to think about ideas is to teach gently. It's taken me a while. I wasn't I'm by no means a perfect teacher, but initially I figured if I said something, people would just take it. No, sometimes you have to be gentle, cajole, coax, but I've developed a style, I hope, that invites people to question as opposed to me standing up and saying, no, you can't do that. You have to do this. So I think developing a teaching style that most people like would be my biggest success. And then of course, my garden, my 38-year-old garden, which to me is not what I thought it was going to be. But as I have grown it, I have my window right here. So looking off to the side was me looking at my front yard. As it has grown, I have grown. And Mm -hmm. so it has taught me a lot. Yeah. That's what I was 32 years at the urban farm in Phoenix on the same property. Mm-hmm. Been asked, what do I miss? And besides my community of peeps, the big <laughs> thing I miss is going out in my yard every day and harvesting fresh food every mm-hmm. single day of the mm-hmm. year. Can't necessarily do that in North Carolina. And we can't do it in Columbus. Although I do use row covers and I yep. can, yeah, I can harvest into December my cold crops like collards and kale and carrots, etc. Yeah. I love the alliteration there. Call it collards, kale, and carrots. I didn't and, plan that. <laughs> and what drives you? Passion, just my love for the natural world and also our built garden world. Passion for growing plants and seeing what they do. That is We've been gifted with this world, this incredibly gorgeous blue-green world. Along with being gifted it, we are responsible for it. And I take that quite seriously. So that is what drives me to not only myself treat it with respect, but helping others to do the same. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? It is important possible to pick one book. So, so, okay. And I'm glad you let me know you were going to ask me this question. Otherwise I'd be sitting here like a fish with my mouth going open and closed. There are two books I would like to mention. One is Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. It blew me away when I read it. It was so important to me. I wish I had read it earlier than I did. I read it in about 1993. And I know that because that's the date inside the copy that I bought. And then the other book is Refuge by Terry Tempest Williams. 
And it was a book that rocked my world. She is an ornithologist in Salt Lake City, and her book is about the juxtaposition of the lowering of the Great Salt. Was it lowering or raising? Now, shoot, I should have taken a look. But the wild bird changing, the wild bird refuge was being threatened. And at the same time, she was dealing with her mother's ovarian cancer. Mm. So she was putting those things together, what happens in our natural world and also in the human world, and how many things were the same. And a piece, an essay that I've had all my students read is The Land Ethic by Aldo Leopold, which is from the Sand County Almanac. It is. It has one of my most favorite quotes in it, and I actually I wrote it down. Please. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. Wow. One of the best quotes ever. Yep. <laughs> and what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Okay. First, approach your garden with a beginner's mind Mm. and an open heart. A beginner's mind, because that means you're not making judgments about what something should be, but instead you are living with it as it is. And with an open heart, that means you work to understand it you observe, you pay attention, you contemplate, you question instead of making judgment. So be open. I guess that's the biggest, um, the biggest thing. And lastly, don't assume because every time you assume nature will come by and slap you upside <laughs> the head. It is a given. And the only bumper sticker I've ever had on my car and I have it still, is nature bats last. Nature bats last. And keep that in your head, and you won't go astray. Yeah. Toby Hemingway, a longtime friend of mine and author Mm -hmm. of Gaia's Garden, that was one of his favorite things, sayings, was nature bats last. And I'm not sure where I first heard it from, but it might have been from Toby Hemingway, Mm -hmm. although I've been using it since the late 90s. So I'm not sure who I got it from. It's out there and it's so Mm. true. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Deborah. You're very welcome. It's been an absolute delight and I learned some things and that's, (laughs) I always love that. I actually went back to college late in life and got a bachelor's and master's because I was interested in learning then. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? I do have a website. It is www.debrathegardensage.com. And that is my business name, The Garden Sage, which my husband came up with that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash The Garden Sage. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.